Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. They went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Father, we pray that you would reveal to us what manner of man Jesus is, that you and your word would speak to us of him so that we might hear. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Our theme in Matthew 8 and 9 is authority. And as any parent can tell you, if you have authority, your authority will be tested. The limits of your authority will be pushed. Jesus has divine authority, and yet we'll see here in subtle ways that that authority is challenged. We've already observed that Jesus isn't working wonders to attract crowds, but if anything, Jesus tries to get away from the crowd, and we see him doing that here. When a crowd gathers, Jesus gives orders, let's get in the boat and cross to the other side. He commands his disciples to come with him on that journey that will take them away from the crowd and to the other side. The centurion has already established for us what authority looks like. An authority gives orders, and those orders are carried out. And now Jesus is essentially trying that out. He's showing us what happens. Jesus gives orders, and now we can see what happens. Jesus gives orders, and we see three different responses, three different struggles with divine authority. The scribe comes to Jesus after this order. Let's let's cross to the other side. The scribe, he seems to go along with Christ's authority wholeheartedly. But the way that Jesus answers him suggests there's something underneath his words that, that suggests that this commitment isn't as real as it seems, that there's a false assumption behind his eagerness. The disciple who wants to bury his father is making what seems to us to be a reasonable point. He's committing. He just can't follow right this minute because he's got a duty to take care of. The way Jesus responds to him shows that his sense of priority, his sense of what matters is flawed, that he's suffering from what we might call disordered love. 
even the disciples on the boat, the men who do follow him when he orders them, once they're on the journey and the storm rages, react to the storm as if Jesus has abandoned them. And then in response to that, Jesus makes the most awe-inspiring demonstration of his authority that we've seen so far. He demonstrates his authority over creation itself. So we want to look at these challenges, these responses to Jesus' authority, and see what we can learn from the way these disciples responded to his call. In the first two examples, we see that when Christ calls you, you shouldn't make excuses. When Christ calls you, don't make excuses. These are familiar stories to us. The first one oftentimes goes under the heading of the cost of discipleship. And the second one, not surprisingly, is often headed, Jesus calms the storm. But because they're so familiar, we sometimes lose sight of what connects them together, what, what binds them, what glue holds the two accounts. Well, the glue is that call to the journey. At the beginning, before the, the first set of stories, Jesus says, he gives the order, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. And then the second one is what happens as they take that journey, as they travel to the other side. So it is the journey that calls them together, the order or, or the call to the journey that binds these stories together. It's the journey that Jesus calls them to that takes them away from the crowds with him to the other side. They've been called, as it were, out of this world to be united to Christ and to go with him to the other side. Like them, you have been called by Christ to come out of the world, to enter into his boat, his ark of salvation, his church, his ecclesia, and to journey with him faithfully to the other side. So what they experience, we too experience because we too are called. And when you're called by Jesus, don't make excuses. Do they make excuses? On a superficial reading, it seems as if everybody who hears the call answers positively. Jesus gets yeses. But if you think about it, these yeses are more like no's. But the scribe immediately commits himself to following Jesus, not just to the other side, but anywhere. I will follow you wherever you go. The disciple commits as well. Yes, he says he has something to take care of first, but, but that's still a yes, a qualified yes. He's willing to go. Just let him take care of something before he does. Yet Jesus doesn't respond to what they say as if they're giving yeses. He responds to reservations in their words. Jesus tells the scribe, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He tells the disciple, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. If you think about Jesus' first response, that seems like a non sequitur. Somebody comes up to you and says, I will follow you, wherever you go, and you say, I don't even have a house. Who said anything about houses? 
No one. I will follow you wherever you go. But then Jesus responds, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Jesus' second response isn't nonsensical, but it is insensitive. The guy comes to him and says, I will follow you. First, let me take care of burying my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead? That's pretty hard. That's pretty lacking in compassion for Jesus to say. But if we ask ourselves why he responds this way, if we ask ourselves not what the men are saying, but what the heart condition is that those words arise from, that's what Jesus is addressing. Jesus isn't just answering the words. He's answering the men, the hearts, the the real objection. The scribe comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. But he's a scribe. He's accustomed to a kind of status, a kind of lifestyle. He's willing to leave that behind But maybe there's an expectation that whatever he leaves behind for Jesus, Jesus will provide, that Jesus will make up for it. That if being a scribe was really cool, if that was something people respected, then following Jesus, being in his inner circle, that will be even greater. Jesus says, no, it's not like that. Jesus doesn't hear the man say, I will follow you anywhere and say, hey, cool, just jump in the boats. That's what I was hoping to hear. Jesus says, wait a second. Wait a second. All the things you're hoping for in this life by following me, I don't have those things. The comforts that you're asking and expecting me to provide for you if you follow me, I don't have them. If you follow me, you have to be like me. If you follow me, you have to live like me, and this is the way that I live. The scribe, when he says, I'll follow you wherever you go, maybe what he has in mind is where you're going, the destination. What a wonderful place that might be. Wherever you're going, I'm sure it's great, and I want to go there too. But what Jesus tells him is, this is a hard way. To follow me, what you leave behind will not necessarily be replaced, will not be made up for in this life. It will be a sacrifice for a person who's accustomed to comfort and respect and rank. That can be a difficult thing to hear. If you're willing to follow, but you're assuming that anything you give up, God, in justice, Your commitment will make up even more. You're not hearing what Jesus says. I don't have a house here. I don't even have a pillow to lay my head on. And if you follow me, you'll live like me. And your resting place will not be here. The disciple is willing to follow He just needs to take care of some business first. He just has some familial obligations, duties that he needs to perform. It's as if he's coming to Jesus and saying, I will follow you, but first I have to see to some more fundamental duties. I have some more basic responsibilities that I need to take care of. 
You might say, if the scribe is willing to follow because he thinks there's going to be some awesome destination here in this life, that the disciple is willing to follow but believes first he has to see to all of the responsibilities that he already possesses where he lives right now, the commitments that he already has. I will cross with you. I just can't do it today. I can't do it now. I can't do it yet. This is a journey that, that he intends to make. This journey to the other side, it would be a wonderful quest, a sort of spiritual thing to do. But he has a life. He has responsibilities. He has people who depend upon him. He has a, a community that looks to him to do the right thing towards his family, towards his, his work. So, of course, he's willing to follow, but be reasonable. I do have certain things that have to come first. I intend to follow you, but naturally, my family is going to come first. Naturally, my job has to come first. That's basic. My life here has to come first. Surely, you can see the virtue in me taking care of my responsibilities and then following you and then giving you what you ask for. It's interesting. Matthew tells us these stories. And then he tells us the disciples get in the boat. But he doesn't make it clear whether these disciples do. We don't know if the scribe hears what Jesus says and is like, hey, I said I was in, I'm in, and gets in the boat. We don't know if the disciple is like, you're right, <laughs> let the dead bury their own dead, I'm getting in the boat. Or if they were discouraged and dismayed, and were like, this guy's weird, I don't think I can follow him, maybe I'll just stay right here. It's an open question, and when the question is open like that, it's almost an invitation to us to place ourselves inside that dilemma, to ask ourselves that same question. Did they get in the boats? I don't know. But we've been called to do what they were called to do. Will we answer? Or will we make excuses? They want security in life. That scribe has a position and he wants to hold on to it. We can relate to that. We want security as well. Will we follow Jesus anyway, even though it entails risk? to our comfort, to our status, to our respectability? Or will we stay on this side of the water and hold on to those things? We know what it's like to have responsibilities, obligations, to love things that are really important to us and not be willing to, to short shrift those responsibilities. Will we follow Jesus first? Or will we tell ourselves, Sure, I'll follow, as long as I can first take care of these more basic, more foundational responsibilities first. In which case, are we really following him at all? I hope that as you wrestle with that dilemma and you see yourself in the hearts of those men, that ultimately you'll realize that although we don't know what they did, we do know what they ought to have done. We do know that they ought to have gotten in the boat, and they ought to have gone with Jesus on that journey. And we should too. Whatever we sacrifice, 
There's no guarantee that what you give up to follow Jesus will be replaced in this life. That, that any hardship you endure, you will be showered with blessings in this life to make up for it. There's no guarantee of that. And yet, when he calls, don't make excuses. And yet, when he calls, follow. And there will be things that are important to you, things that are good things, that because he's called you, you can't put first. That sometimes Jesus will come before things that really matter to you. But when he calls, don't make excuses. Despite that, when he calls, follow him and get in the boat. And also, don't worry that once you're in the boat that maybe you're not good enough because it turns out nobody in the boat was very good. Because the dilemma doesn't end there. It continues actually on the boat. The disciples who seem like the stand-up guys, the ones who were not getting pushback from Jesus, when Jesus said, get in the boat, the people that were like, yep, there's the boat. Let's get in it. Let's go. He said so. We're doing it. When they're in the boat... And they cross the water, and suddenly there's a storm on the water. They don't respond like heroes of the faith. They panic. They're fearful. Jesus had warned the scribe, so to speak. He'd warned the disciple, if you follow me, it's not going to be easy. And now the people who follow him find out firsthand how true that is. Their boat is being swamped. They're going to be drowned if Jesus doesn't do something. And Jesus is asleep. Do you remember when Elijah was taunting the prophets of Baal? And they were cutting themselves, dancing around, begging Baal to intercede and throw down fire. Do you remember the joke, the way that, that Elijah needled them, what he told them they needed to do? He said, cry out louder. Perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. And now Jesus' followers find themselves, ironically, in that very same situation where, like the priests of Baal, they have to cry aloud because God is in the boat, but he's not paying attention. He's sleeping. We're about to be drowned. We're going to be overwhelmed. We followed you, and now we're going to be destroyed, and you're not even awake in our greatest moment of need. As if the disciples, in their cry, are reproaching Jesus. Have you abandoned us in the storm? Is that what's happening here? We followed you, and now you're not even paying attention to what's happening to us? If that was their cry, they weren't the first followers to cry in that way. The people of Israel, when Moses led them out of Egypt, that was a constant complaint that they had. The Egyptians are chasing us. It was so awesome to be delivered from Egypt yesterday, but now that we're about to be destroyed, we're really mad. We're mad at God. Did he bring us out into the wilderness just so that he could destroy us? And they kept using that against him over and over again. If you go to Numbers chapter 16, at Korah's rebellion, the same accusation. They say to Moses, is it a small thing that you have brought us out of Egypt, a land flowing with milk and honey, to kill us here in the wilderness? Do you realize what we left behind to follow you? And when we're in trouble, this is how you respond? That's the cry. That's what's behind those words. When we hear them cry out and they cry out, save us, 
You might read that superficially as a sort of pious cry. Jesus, save us. That's good. That should be our prayer. But there's a feeling behind it that's not right. They doubt the authority of Christ in this situation. They don't believe that he's looking out for him. They feel like they've been abandoned. Jesus is asleep during the storm. It's interesting when they wake him up, he doesn't coddle them. He reproaches them. He rebukes them for their reaction. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? They're like, well, Jesus, I mean... (laughs) It's because our boat is about to be swamped and we're going to be drowned. Most people in those circumstances are afraid, regardless of how much faith they have. But Jesus doesn't respond with understanding, as if it's totally like, comprehensible to him that they would react this way. Instead, he rebukes it. He treats their fear as if it is absurd. That this doubt, this questioning, is absurd. That it is a product of too little faith. Which makes sense if you think about his words to them, the sermon he's just preached to them. Hasn't he already told them that following him, there will be storms? He's already said that if you follow me, it doesn't mean there will be no storm. Of course there will be. The end of Matthew chapter 7, as he closes the Sermon on the Mount, he tells us the story of the wise man who builds his house on the rock because there will be a storm. He's made it really clear What's happening now is what I told you is going to happen. But I told you then that you would endure the storm. That following me would not mean that you'd never be tested, but that following me would mean that when you are tested, you will endure. If you're in the boat with me, you will make it to the other side. That's what Jesus is saying. When Jesus, our divine King, calls us all too often, we respond the way all of these disciples do. We commit, but we hedge our bets, assuming that that everything that we sacrifice, everything we leave behind, needs to be made up for by God. And if it's not, we start looking at what we lost as if it was wonderful. We start remembering the land of our captivity as if it flowed with milk and honey and was a great place, and we were happy there. Jesus calls us, we commit, but only so far. We commit, but we expect him to understand that there are other things in life that have to come first. We commit to him. We follow him. But when we are tested, we turn on him. As if what's happening wasn't supposed to happen. As if he didn't tell us already it was exactly what would happen. As if Jesus had said, if you get in the boat with me, it will be smooth sailing. Instead, he never did. When this happens to you, and it will, remember what these disciples have shown us. When Christ calls you to follow, don't make excuses. And when you're in the boat with Jesus, there's no room for fear. Only faith, only trust, that whatever we endure, Jesus will see us through to the other side. The only thing you need to know, in other words, is what sort of man Jesus is, which is the question, finally, that these disciples are left with, which is ironic, again, because these are the people who followed him. These are the people who got in the boat. These are the people who cried out to him to do something in their distress, and when he did, they were freaked out by what he did, and they felt like they didn't even know who he was. 
the authority of Jesus over us is tested, it's challenged three times in this narrative. And then Jesus answers by demonstrating his authority, by showing his command over creation. Matthew says, He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. He rebuked the winds and the sea, and rebuking is something you do verbally. Right? Once again, we're seeing the power of Christ. He speaks it, and it happens. He speaks calm, and there is calm, no matter what storm was raging before. That's his authority. When the human beings challenge his authority, he's not silent in the face of those challenges. He answers each of them. He answers them finally, definitively, in a way that, that astonishes them. As we've seen, Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds are all a demonstration of his power, and they're meant to astonish us. They are meant to leave our jaws dropped. Now, the value of the deed is that it testifies to the content of the word. The sign that Jesus performs in calming the storm lends validity to the words that Jesus has spoken. It testifies to his authority. And it leads even his followers to ask, what sort of man is this that even winds and sea, all creation, obey him? That's the right question. Whenever we're lacking in faith, whenever we are fearful, whenever we are hesitant, whenever we are keeping the most important things in life in reserve, the question we have to ask ourselves is, what sort of man is Jesus? What sort of man is it who I follow? The answer to that question is the explanation for why the house that Jesus is building is better than any security that you sacrifice in this life. It's why we must put Jesus ahead of even the best things, the best blessings in life. and Why there is no room for fear when we are with Jesus, even though the circumstances threaten to swamp us and drown us. It's because of who He is that we can live through those situations with hope. Who is He? Who is He? The Holy Spirit has answered this question for us. The Holy Spirit in Scripture has told us who Jesus is. The beginning of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, Jesus is God's Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which helps explain how he can rebuke the sea and the winds. In John's prologue, John says, John 1.3, All things were made through Jesus, and without him was not anything made that was made. The end of the book of Revelation, Jesus himself testifies I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. That's who he is. That's why he commands creation, because he is the one through whom all things were made. That's why when he calls to it, creation listens. And sets an example for us about how we should answer that call as well. 
There's some things we can learn about Jesus' authority here. Things that help us appreciate who he is. Despite Jesus' great power, Jesus is not using his power to build an earthly house. Whatever the scribe might hope for, Jesus has no palace on the other side, waiting uh, on the other side of Galilee for his disciples to occupy. He doesn't even have a house. He doesn't have a feasting hall to treat all of his followers. You remember at the Last Supper, he has to borrow one just so that his disciples have a place to celebrate the Passover. But when you have authority over everything, you have need of nothing. Jesus doesn't use his power for these trivial things. He doesn't need to. We're called to have a similar confidence in this life because we live with and in the one who wields authority over all things. We may enjoy earthly blessings, but we should never put our trust in them, never find our security in them. We should never neglect the journey that he has called us to for their sake. Never seek a resting place here, but instead follow after him. Jesus also shows us it's not admirable to use good things, blessings, righteous responsibility, loved ones, family duties as an excuse not to follow him. It's not noble to value those things in such a way that they stand between you and the God who made you. If your obedience to him only goes so far, if it's fenced in by what, you, what you've told yourself or more important concerns then you're not on the journey at all. His response to his disciples in the boat teaches us something too. As I said, he doesn't respond to them the way that you might think. Jesus is our high priest. He can sympathize with us in our weakness, but in their weakness of faith, he doesn't coddle them the way that a parent might treat a fearful child. He doesn't say, there, there, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, Jesus will make the storm go away. Instead, he instructs them, he rebukes them, he calls them to greater faith. He says, you shouldn't feel this way. You shouldn't have this anxiety. You shouldn't believe that the one who called you into the boat and who promised you the other side would abandon you here. It's absurd. It's crazy to think that I might leave you in this way. You should have faith in me, trust in me, in my power, because I'm not just powerful, I'm also good. And I love you. That's the nature of the authority who calls to us. The Jesus who calls to us, that's who he is. He is in authority over all things, possesses unimaginable power, and yet that power is wielded in unimaginable goodness and incomprehensible love toward us. That's the kind of man Jesus is. He calls to us and tells us, come with me into my ark. Come with me on this journey. Leave the world behind. Come with me to the other side. The house I'm building for you there is more magnificent than any resting place that you could have here. And when you're tested, and you will be tested, you can have no fear because I'm with you and I am the divine king who rules over all things, and who promises you all things. So follow me and believe.
Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.